From CPRI and the CPRI Knowledge Hub, this is Research Minutes, a weekly look at new and important research in education. Today we look at Opportunity for All, a new book by acclaimed researchers Marshall Smith and Jennifer O'Day, which draws on decades of knowledge to present an ambitious vision of the future of American education. So conditions have changed, but also we've learned about more about how um, both children and adults learn, and we wanted to capture some of the learning that's taken place over this period of time and apply it to our understanding of both equity and quality. Smith and O'Day joined CPRI Executive Director Jonathan Sapovitz to discuss the book, which examines the failures of past efforts to address systemic inequality and presents a research-backed framework to promote quality and equality in schools across the country. This is a huge problem for this country. We advantage the advantaged and we disadvantage the disadvantaged. It's, it's, a, it's a really bad place to be. So we're trying to address that set of issues in a way of increasing quality of the entire system, which we also will hope and be targeted toward reducing the inequalities. That's right now on Research Minutes. Welcome to Research Minutes. I'm Jonathan Sapovitz, Executive Director of the Consortium for Policy Research and Education, headquartered at the University of Pennsylvania's Graduate School of Education. It's really wonderful today to be speaking with Jennifer O'Day and Marshall Mike Smith, who are longtime collaborators and have recently released a book together called Opportunity for All, published by Harvard Education Press. The book provides a vision and framework for quality and equality in education. Jennifer and Mike were at Stanford together in the late 1980s, where they wrote a seminal article on systemic reform in education. Mike went on to be Undersecretary and Deputy Secretary of Education during the Clinton administration and Director of Education Programs for the Hewlett Foundation. Jennifer is a fellow at the American Institutes for Research and founder and chair of the California Collaborative on District Reform. Welcome, Mike and Jennifer. Thank you. Thank you. So could you give us a little background about your new book? After all, it's been over 30 years since a piece that you co-wrote together on systemic school reform. That 1990 education policy article laid out the principle of systemic reform, which called for coherence across different policy levels and alignment between key elements of education governance, including standards, accountability, and capacity. Why did you think you should do a book that follows up on that original piece? The way I look at it, there were really three main factors that motivated us to write this book. One uh, is the observation that the policy and practice environment has changed considerably since we wrote that first article. In 1990, when it was published, the idea of common state standards was just barely emerging from the field. And since that time, of course, all states now have standards. Uh, there was a big move to develop common standards even across the states in the Common Core. In addition, um, states have had and the, the nation has had now at least 20, 25 years of standards-based reform, you know, whereas before we didn't 
uh, have um, professional learning communities or talk much about networks. Now that's very commonplace and so forth. So conditions have changed. Also, we've learned a lot as a field, um, both from looking at the implementation of standards-based reform and system change, um, but also we've learned about more about how um, both children and adults learn, and we wanted to capture some of the learning that's taken place over this a period of time and apply it to our understanding of both equity and quality. And uh, finally, in part because of what we've learned, both from uh, change efforts and from research, there have been many different approaches that have emerged that people are trying to incorporate into their system or instructional practice. Often these are based in research, but it's, it's difficult to sort of combine them into a coherent whole. And what we wanted to do is to also look at those things, try to understand them, and figure out relationships and a way to present them in a coherent framework um, that would help people make the connections in order to move forward. I mean, I think the, the other issue is that we, and, and we'll talk about this, but there's also some things that neither of us agreed with and that we think there is good evidence that they don't uh, work particularly well. So in the, in the meantime, it, it's not just been standards and coherence and everybody working together and so on. There's been a lot of accountability you know, until right now, even um, there's set of accountability requirements on the states and districts and schools that are really pretty, uh, pretty, pretty strong. And there was also accountability on teaching, uh, on teachers, which I think neither of us really thought uh, was going to turn out very well. It did, it did not. So, you know, it was to let, we wanted to clear the air a little bit on, on some of the issues and, and to try to make the other issues in our version uh, a little more coherent. They fit together in a sensible way. And that, and that's absolutely so that the book is chock full of nice little vignettes of successes and challenges from the field or things that, as you say, haven't panned out and arguably have moved us in directions that are not productive. So in the book, you give substantial attention to examining the deep inequalities in our education system, which in many ways mirror some of the larger social inequities. And you make the argument that quality in our overall education system and our larger system are inextricably linked. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the connection between quality and inequality and also the link between inequality in education and some of the larger social forces? On the quality and inequality issue, if a system shows wide disparities in the nature of its effectiveness, in this case on children, we, we take the stance that it never can be. Uh, it's never a system that you want to have in your, in your particular uh, part of the world. And what we find is actually something a little bit worse than just, just having people with low scores and, and so on. What we find is, is a huge distance between the advantaged in the country, uh, the advantaged students in the country and the disadvantaged students. And it's also a distance between white and Asian students and black and Hispanic students. And this is a huge, huge difference. When you look at the, at the uh, 
the scores of uh, the, the recent international study, two recent, actually, international studies, what you find is that students who come from high-income families, social high, social class families, score near the top. Uh, they, if they were a con country, they would be on the top two. And students who come from least advantaged families are down at the bottom of the set of, set of other countries. It's also true when you take uh, whites and Asians. They are almost at the top of, of the system of countries and blacks and Hispanic uh, Latinx are at the bottom. So this is, this is a, a huge problem for this country. We advantage the advantaged and we disadvantage the disadvantaged. It's, it's, a, it's a really bad place to be because we really have to try to figure out how to overcome this, this huge gap in a, in a country that uh, where, where the people that, that have children who are advantaged uh, don't want to give up on their advantagement and where the disadvantaged don't have uh, a lot of clout uh, in the system. So we're trying to address that set of issues in a way of increasing the quality of the entire system, uh, which we also will hope uh, and be targeted toward uh, reducing the inequalities. So often we think about equality and quality as pushing against each other. And, you know, historically we've kind of viewed those at somewhat of a trade-off between those two. But your argument is that they're connected and to decrease inequality and to increase quality um, are really tied together. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on the connection between equality and quality? I think one of the things that we argue is that you can't get to meaningful equity without a high quality system, without addressing the overall quality of kids' education. We have seen, actually, from experience and from research that taking a, an approach to equity that focuses only on certain kids and only on certain aspects of inequities within the system is not going to really realize full opportunity for those children that you need at the base a high quality um, educational system when that's fully functional, that addresses instruction in meaningful ways, uh, and so forth. And, and we talk about various aspects of what we think is a high quality system. In the book, you've woven together some things that we've really learned over the past 30 years. And these seem to be very formative in helping to shape both the structure of the book. Are there particular things that you would point to that have really moved our understanding forward? So I think that there are several lessons, a number of lessons that we learned from looking at not only the reforms over the last 30 years, but over the last 60 years since uh, there's been a lot of attention to civil rights and, and addressing inequities. And one of the most important ones is that implementation often dominates impact. And we have historically paid too little attention to implementation. You can have the best designed set of policies or practices, but if they're not implemented well, uh, you're not going to realize the impact uh, that you want to see. 
And some of the things that affect implementation are obviously context. We've learned that context really matters and differs from place to place. The histories that people have of improvement efforts, the conditions that they work under, and so forth. Another uh, important factor is the capacity, both of individuals, like in terms of human capital, knowledge, and skills of individuals, but also the capacity of organizations and systems, their uh, structures and processes, and the d- degree of coherence among those things to support quality and equality. And we've also learned that implementation is a social process. You hear oftentimes now people talking about the importance of relationships. And that's um, both because relationships or uh, social engagement is necessary for learning, both for kids and for adults, and for the execution, really, of any uh, change efforts. And, and it's really a piecemeal interventions ignore underlying conditions, schools, and systems. You cannot do it alone. And so we have a uh, avalanche of individual interventions, uh, often carrying the, the sign that in an RCT they were statistically significant at the 0.05 level or, or whatever. And these are interventions that may not be valid in the sense that they're now shown to be uh, effective, but, but uh, they're also single interventions that go into a school and get badly, uh, badly implemented. People don't even spend any attention to the implementation. One example of that is trying to address the turnover, the teacher turnover in high poverty schools, which is a great thing to do. And uh, one way that has, some systems have incorporated is incentives for people to go work and stay in those systems. But if you don't address the underlying working conditions in those schools and communities, then you're not going to be able to keep the people that you incentivize to move in there. Right. So the next set is really a, a set of, of issues that, that uh, or, or ideas or uh, ways of thinking about what should be included in an effective, in an effective school. The, the first is this set of ideas around content standards. And, and we're expanding the, the concept of content standards from just academic standards to both academic standards and social-emotional learning standards. The importance of social and emotional learning has just has come out very, very strongly over the last, uh, the last 10 or 15 years. Its effect on, on student learning, its effect on schools um, in general, and uh, it turns out to be a very powerful mechanism to help increase academic learning itself. So I think that we see as a starting framework for for the work of of the school that we're imagining in these next five chapters. I think, too, what we've learned is that standards clearly are not enough by themselves, even supported by a strong policy environment. One of the things that our practitioner uh, colleagues have stressed with us is the importance of a, a vision and structured approach to instruction itself. And that vision, uh, some of the things that have been identified as being important to that vision is that it encourages the development of students' social and emotional skills and their sense of agency and identity, as well as their access to the, the academic standards and the opportunity to demonstrate uh, what they've learned in a variety of ways. We 
talk about two uh, frameworks that incorporate these ideas in the book, uh, the Universal Design for Learning and Teaching for Robust Understanding. And there's a great deal of research that shows that these are useful approaches not only for particular groups of kids, but for all kids. And I, I've neglected to mention that, that that instructional vision needs to be scaffolded by a very comprehensive and coherent approach to um, human capital and to the development of teacher and administrator and leader knowledge. And we give the examples of a, of a few districts that have such systems in place where all the folks are really working together to develop the capacity and ensure the quality of that instruction. A third area that we that we focus on is, is the area of continuous improvement. And this is a relatively new feature in many schools and districts across the country. It may be thought of as the how to be the mechanism in school improvement and school change. It's useful in implementation. It's the how do we create a good implementation of something or how do we how do we begin to address and, and improve children's scores in fourth grade reading or eighth grade math or increase the percentage that graduate from high school or get the school buses to be more on time. These are all problems that can be addressed uh, by a set of strategies that, that are called generally called continuous improvement strategies. And they compare with the, with the way that the world operated uh, or still continues to operate in many cases. Often superintendent or a principal uh, just tell the teachers to up their game if their scores are down a little bit. Continuous improvement provides a process for carrying out the improvement effort. And that helps an institution to begin to think about how it can learn, how it can get better at its work. It has a set of components that are important to, to think about. One is you need a clear definition of a problem. Another is that you can use variability in what you're looking at as a source of information. A third is a general systems perspective, which clearly our book takes. Fourth is evidence-based. Fifth is a discipline strategy. And sixth is exactly what one of the things that Jennifer was just saying. It's not a solo process that, that we have. There are a variety of sites around the country, uh, including a whole bundle of, of improvement networks of districts and single districts, such as Baltimore. When applied to the system as a whole, uh, it becomes part of the culture of the organization. So, so just as social-emotional learning may be seen as a collective enterprise, as something that affects the entire uh, the entire operation in a school or in the district, continuous improvement also also can work as, as part of the culture of the organization. But I would argue that continuous improvement in and of itself is, is not enough to ensure that the problems related to equity are addressed. And to do that, we would stress that you need really explicit and clear attention to the inequities that exist within the system. Tony Brake has defined inequity in terms of the places where educational institutions systematically foreclose opportunities to some children, where predictable failures occur year after year. Like a fourth aspect of our kind of vision of a more successful and, and equitable system is that it identifies those predictable failures and addresses uh, attention and strategies to them. We 
um, note four in particular that have strong implications for traditionally underserved kids. One is uh, the issue of safe and supportive school, paying attention to the climate of the school and the engagement of students in a really positive way, which is often not the case when people talk about, for instance, talk about school safety. A set of tiered interventions whereby attention can be given to individual student needs as they arise to enable early intervention and prevention of more serious uh, difficulties for kids. Real emphasis on language development. Language is so key to everything in schooling. And at the heart of that, at the heart of foundation for literacy is the importance of oral language. And often we don't give enough attention to the development of oral language, including in children's native tongue, which may or may not be English. Um, and finally, explicit attention to key transition points in students' uh, educational careers from kindergarten to first grade, from third grade to fourth grade, from elementary to middle school, and so forth. These are often points where children can fall through the cracks because uh, things change. And unless they receive support to address those changes and respond to them, they may start falling behind in school um, and even drop out. So that's kind of the fourth um, aspect of this vision. And the, the final aspect that we emphasize is the connections, again, with the community. So we've noted how uh, inequalities exist both outside of school and inside of school. And to address the real deep disparities in opportunities uh, for children, we need to better connect schools with child and family serving um, agencies and groups in the community that are addressing things like housing and nutrition and health uh, care and so forth um, to give many of our children a better chance at success. That's a really nice way of framing all the different elements that you really focus on as necessary system conditions for equity and quality. In the latter part of the book, you discuss possible ways for change to happen in the directions that you propose. Um, what are some of the key elements that you see as ways for change to happen? What we're trying to think about there is how do you, how do you move at scale to um, a system that has those kinds of elements? And we've learned from prior research the importance of both pressure in one form or another to motivate change and support for that change. And so we identify three uh, domains in which the combination of pressure and support might help systems move in the direction of more equitable and effective systems. Well, well I think the, the pressure and support comes very neatly into the into whatever set of policies you're trying to to establish, and, and uh, I think our our tendency uh, would be to reduce some of the uh, of the pressure that has tried to be applied by the federal government in particular, but also by state governments and sometimes by by districts, and and turn it into turn it into support rather than rather than pressure. But on the policy, clearly we have a fiscal problem. It's really quite extraordinary uh, between the advantaged and disadvantaged. Uh, we have substantial variation among schools within districts, uh, substantial variation within schools, within some schools, although that's lessening. There's been an attempt to, to stop that from happening, even with, with Title I not making, not filling up the gap in many places. Among districts within states and huge differences among the states themselves. 
southern states by and large are three four thousand dollars per child uh, behind many of the northern states and, and uh, it's not as though we should figure out exactly how to, to straighten out that the mixture but what you're seeing is that we need to begin to pay serious attention to the distribution of funds across the country as the federal government gives out funds and other policy acts best include uh, support of what Jennifer will talk, be talking about in the, in the community issues in particular. Uh, but we need to support kids at birth, the, the parents of kids at birth. We need to support them in early childhood. We need to give other medical support throughout their, throughout their first 18 years. This is, you know, it's a whole litany of environmental issues for these kids that, that uh, we talked about a little bit earlier, but they just come up again and again, and somebody's got to begin to address them. It's not going to be all the all the federal government it probably shouldn't be, uh, but state governments need to get into this activities these activities uh, as well as the local districts. So the set of, of fiscal effects need to support somehow the kind of, of efforts that we talked about in the in the earlier chapters. I think in looking at the role of policy, though, um, over the last couple of decades, we've also seen that that policy can be too active in this. Like we can specify too much and see changes only coming from outside and on high. And um, one of the things that we have not paid enough attention to, I think, is the role that the profession uh, can play in this. The education profession in the U.S. is not as strong as it is in some other countries, although there are examples of where it's played a really important role. For example, the uh, National Council of Teachers of Mathematics, uh, their standards publication for mathematics in 1989 was a really important impetus for standards-based reform overall uh, in the country, and they played a very important leading role in that. But I think that there's been an effort recently to can really improve and make robust, more robust, the professional standards uh, that we have. And we see the need to continue that effort. In addition, I think we talk about the role of professional accountability. It's not just the standards coming from the profession, but it's the profession holding itself accountable and not necessarily relying on the state or the federal government to do that. We talk about the importance of improving professional preparation and ongoing learning of, of teachers and other educators, of developing professional leadership, teacher leaders, leaders in districts and states who can model professional standards and, and, a, and a learning and professional approach uh, to their work. And um, we also emphasize the importance uh, and the value of collaboration between um, particularly at the local level between local unions and uh, district leadership or school leadership, that that can be an important avenue for spreading collaborative practice, attention to student assessment and learning and so forth. And that if the profession and if the, the unions that represent the profession aren't on board, there's very little ultimately that you're going to be able to do to deeply affect what happens in classrooms. 
And finally, as Mike mentioned, uh, a, a third uh, sort of avenue for uh, or source of both pressure and support for change is the broader community. Uh, we talk about education as being both a public good with many stakeholders who benefit from a, a well-educated uh, citizenry and workforce and a private good that's especially important for parents and their students in uh, their children in ensuring the success of those children and their uh, access to educational opportunities. And we see the value of engaging the broader citizenry through partnerships, through broad public mobilization and so forth in the support not only of their schools and education in general, which is very important, but also in efforts to really address inequities and improve the services and the outcomes for all children, which is to the benefit of the entire um, society. So uh, that, I think, this three-pronged approach of, of policy um, at the government or administrative level, of mobilizing the profession, and of really engaging the broad citizenry in the efforts to improve schools and school systems in this direction is where we see the change coming from and the foundation for sustaining that change over time. This is a really provocative piece of work that really reflects the huge complexity and diversity and just breadth of our education system. And after reading uh, Opportunity for All, I really came away so impressed by the way that you have organized um, this incredibly complex terrain in a way that is understandable and, and pushed our thinking forward in a number of key and important ways. And I encourage our listeners to pick up a copy of Mike and Jennifer's book, again, entitled Opportunity for All, published by Harvard Education Press. Jennifer O'Day and Mike Smith, thank you so much for joining us on Research Minutes today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks for listening to this week's Research Minutes, presented by the CPRE Knowledge Hub. For more episodes of this podcast, or to subscribe to the series, visit us at researchminutes.org. To share your thoughts on today's episode, or to suggest future topics, follow us on Twitter at CPRE Hub. That's C-P-R-E, hub.